Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can rely upon it as our guide for faith and life. We, uh, and we thank you that we uh, can rely on it with certainty that it is your word. We pray that as we uh, study your coming that you would help us to be grateful uh, for your promise um, that you ultimately will return and uh, bring everything that you have started to completion. Uh, we pray that we would find encouragement um, in your sovereignty and encouragement in our knowledge that uh, righteousness will ultimately prevail. Uh, we ask your blessing on our study in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in First Thessalonians chapter 5 today. So I actually do have a plan for today, which I may or may not fulfill. But um, we'll start out by just clarifying a couple of things from last week. And um, for those of you that weren't here last week, we spent our second uh, Sunday together on uh, the last verses of First Thessalonians 4. So we will just clarify a couple of things that I wanted to uh, mention from that. And then we will start looking a little bit at chapter 5. From there we will take a detour, as promised last week, and talk about the different um, schools of thought regarding um, the millennium, regarding the second coming of Christ. And then if we have time after all that, then we will return to the passage and look at some other things. I really want to deal with the passage and make sure we do, but we also have to move on because I had said that this class was about first and second Thessalonians, and if I don't get busy, um, it will only be about first Thessalonians. So we've got to get moving. So um, last week... Um, we, we were talking about, we did a little bit of a word study re, with regard to the, the word that Paul used for the word coming. And um, in looking at that, Addie made the comment, and it was a good comment, that um, the text was a lot more clear for people that knew Greek. And, and, that's, and in response to that, I mentioned that that's the reason that in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we put a lot of emphasis on our ministers um, knowing the languages um, because those that teach us in the capacity of pastor uh, need to understand um, the language of the text clearly so that they can teach it to us um, clearly. And all of that's true. But I was thinking afterwards, one, one thing that we never want to do is give people the impression that in order to understand your Bibles that you have to know languages or give anybody the idea that the experts are able to read and understand scripture and then the rest of us are just reliant on the experts. And there have been Christians through the years that have sort of um, heard ministries, I guess, that lean that direction and they sort of throw up their hands and, and wonder what's the point. Well, you never want believers in the pew um, to to come to that point, and so you should engage in regular Bible study. And, and we can have confidence that while there is clarity that comes with understanding the Greek and Hebrew, and so we do want those that teach us in a ministerial capacity to have that ability, um, we should also have an understanding that our English translations are reliable and you can read and understand scripture without 
knowing the languages or without having formal seminary training and all that sort of thing. So I wanted to make sure, and I don't think that anybody here would have that impression, but I want to make sure that it's clear that we all should engage in our own Bible reading. And <clears throat> the, the, the reason that we want our ministers to understand uh, the language is if, you, is if you understand things deeply, then you can, you ought to be able, it helps you to explain things simply. Um, I found when I teach that the things that I'm most confusing about are things that I don't understand very well because I'm kind of on the edge of what I understand. And so you, if you ask questions or if I get into things that push me beyond that edge, then I'm probably not going to be very clear. And so we don't have our ministers understand the languages so that they can stand up and talk about how to conjugate Greek verbs that would put us all to sleep and it wouldn't matter to us anyway. But the point is if they can read the text and understand it that way, then they can explain um, the passage to us simply. And so um, languages are important, but um, as uh, lay people, we should, uh, be, um, con- we should understand that we have good, reliable English translations and we can rely upon them and read them and understand them. Um, another thing that came up last week, we were talking about different schools of thought with regard to prophecy and um, questions regarding um, who does and who does not take Scripture literally. And so um, with regard particularly to prophecies from the Old Testament, um, one of the schools of thought that we will talk about later, the premillennial dispensationalists, which is way too many big words. But they, they talk about, well, we take the Bible literally and others do not. And so after um, our discussion in class, Kevin um, came up and, and was sharing some thoughts about that. And I thought those were really helpful. So, Kevin, would you like to just talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, the, in several of his books, R.C. Sproul makes an observation that a lot of emphasis on literal interpretation, but the phrase itself is a misnomer. He says that the actual orig- original idea of census literalis, which means literary sense, which means you, you look at the passage based on the literary type. Is it historical? Is it prophetic? Is it poetry? Because it, it, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the door or I am the body? That can't be taken literally. Um, it would be nonsense. So you have to kind of understand what the genre of literature itself is prior to even thinking about anything else. And that's that's such an important point. So we tend to talk about um, reading the text, uh, thinking about the grammar and the historical context, but also, is it poetry? Is it a metaphor? You know, what's the intention of the a writer or when Jesus was speaking, what's the intention uh, with the way that they use the language? So it's such an important point. So it's it's not necessarily a virtue or good biblical interpretation to take something literally if it's not intended to be taken literally. And so uh, that's really such an important point. And thank you for bringing that out. Okay, let's read together 1 Thessalonians 5, or I'll read it if you want to uh, look on as I read. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, 
you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. the, The phrases that Paul uses here in the first couple of verses bring to mind other uh, phrases that are used elsewhere in scripture and so even just the beginning of the passage now concerning is an indication that he's moving to at least a somewhat different subject so the passage that concluded chapter four um, about the coming of the lord um, probably related to a specific set of concerns that they had there at the church They expected the coming of Christ to be uh, within their lifetime. Some members of the congregation had died, and so they were confused about what was going on, and they were sorrowing like hopeless people sorrow, as Paul puts it in verse uh, 13. And so um, he's writing about specific circumstances in the church, and these would have been reported back to him by Timothy when he returned from the church. In chapter 5, he begins now concerning... And this is a transition. um, If you read through, for example, 1 Corinthians, um, you'll find um, at the start of several of our um, chapters in our Bibles from 1 Corinthians, he'll begin a new topic by saying, now concerning, now concerning spiritual gifts, now concerning meat offered to idols and so forth. And so this is a phrase that he commonly uses to designate a new subject. Now, this is not a new subject in its entirety since he's still talking about the coming of the Lord, but it probably indicates here that he's moving from a subject that related to specific problems or concerns in the church to now he's talking more generally about, um, about uh, correct doctrine and their way of thinking about the return of Christ. And so there is a transition here. Now, along with that, he uses the phrase, now concerning the times and the seasons. Where else have you seen that particular phrase? Acts chapter 1, where Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, and the disciples ask Jesus, at this time, are you going to restore Israel? And Jesus responds, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons. And so Paul actually uses uh, precisely the same phrase as what Jesus did um, immediately prior to his ascension. Now, it is interesting that Jesus responds to the question of the disciples by saying, it's not for you to know about this, about when I'm going to restore Israel or about happenings at the end of the age. Here, 
Paul says, now concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. Which doesn't really, it's not the kind of rebuke that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1, but it's more along the lines of, I don't need to tell you really anything more about this because I've already explained these things. You already understand it. And so it's a, it's a different type of tone that Paul takes here. Not, you're not, um, you don't need, it's not for you to know this, like Jesus said to the disciples, but these are things that you already know. And so I'm just going to elaborate for the point, for the point of making sure that you're living by them. And so it's a different tone here. Now, questions come up with regard to how is it that sometimes, as in the words of Jesus, um, there's a rebuke for these kinds of questions, whereas elsewhere we have lots of teaching regarding the return of Christ. And from from what I understand... I think the difference is that in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, teaching concerning the um, um, return of Christ is never given for the purpose of satisfying our speculative curiosity. It's never given for purposes of satisfying our speculative curiosity. Rather, the doctrine of the return of Christ is talked about in the Bible and particularly in the New Testament in order to confirm us in our appreciation and understanding of the sovereignty of God. Even when things look out of control, we can be confident that they remain under God's control and he is going to bring everything to its proper end. And assurance that God is going to keep his promises, both regard, with regard to our individual redemption and to the consummation of all things. And so the doctrine of the return of Christ is not something that's speculative so that we can pull out our charts and check off the boxes and say, I figured it all out. But rather it is... Um, it is constructive to the nature of our Christian lives. Um, Suffering people or discouraged people or people that are going through hard times need assurances about the sovereignty of God. We need assurances that God is both able and willing uh, to keep his promises. We need um, assurance that God is going to bring all things to pass as he has promised that he will bring them to pass. And that seems certainly in 1 Thessalonians, but elsewhere in the Bible, the point of teaching regarding the second coming of Christ. I, I have a family member that gets all into this. And, um, and he's confident that I've gone off the rails and don't understand the subject at all. But... Um, but um, he, he spends, has spent lots of times in the worst possible place reading on the internet, um, finding all this information about um, modern day Israel and things happening in Europe and um, reading and rereading Ezekiel 38 and 39 and, and all of this stuff and, and has written um, 
papers that nobody but me will ever have to read. And, um, and, and just really, you know, uh, uh, pleased that he's put so much work into figuring all this out. Um, sadly, um, if I try to talk with him about um, confidence for our, our eternity because we believe in Christ and that we are justified by faith, he has no interest in that topic, um, which is worrisome. I'm not saying this to criticize anybody if you're listening on the podcast, but um, but the, the, the point is that um, that teaching regarding the second coming is not intended to satisfy our curiosity. It is to uh, drive us to Christ as the one who will fulfill his promises and who will... Um, relieve our suffering and bring um, righteousness uh, to prevail. So these, these are comforting promises to believers. Now, the, the other phrase, and I need to move quickly so I can get to the part that we all want to discuss. Um, the third uh, phrase that has uh, important biblical import here is that he talks about the day of the Lord. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is a common one in the Old Testament prophets. Um, I wrote down a bunch of passages that I was going to read, but I think I'm not going to do that. But just to give you some texts, if you want to look at them later, um, Isaiah 2.12, Jeremiah 46.10, Ezekiel chapter 30, verses 2 and 3. Um, Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And those were just a few that I wrote down. Joel chapter 2. Um, there are a lot more. This is a common phrase in the Old Testament, in the prophetic literature. And um, if not always, almost always refers to the day of the Lord as the day of judgment. And so there is. this is another transition between the language in chapter 4 and the language here at the opening of chapter 5. Um, chapter 4 is the spring of hope, and chapter 5 is the winter of despair for those who are not uh, believers. Those are phrases original with me, so be sure to uh, cite me if, as a footnote if you use them. Um, but anyway, um, um, the transition here is the hopeful expectation, the encouragement of believers um, that the resurrection of the dead is going to happen, which is the focus of the passage in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, there's a different focus that as Christians, we are ready and we need to be ready because the day of judgment is coming. And so there, there is a transition from chapter 4 to chapter 5. Um, same event, not two different events. One event, but they will be uh, seen quite differently um, for those who are prepared, that is, believers, as opposed to those who are not prepared. So that's my introduction on this text. We're about to transition into um, the class's request that we talk about the different millennial views. But before we do that, I'll see if there are any questions or comments. John? It's a simple question. Did you say that you had, there were three key phrases that you highlighted out of this Passage we just read. Yeah, the oh, and the now concerning, just that, <laughs> that it was his common way of transitioning. Okay. Just for my notes, thank you. 
Okay, so um, the last couple of weeks in talking about the return of Christ, we've made brief references to the fact that um, Christians have four primary views, uh, four schools of thought with regard to um, the coming of the return of Christ. And all these are focused on an understanding of the millennium. The, the word millennium is one that just means a thousand years. The reference to a thousand years only occurs one place in the Bible. That's in the first ten verses of Revelation uh, chapter 20. And the thousand years is described as a time of the binding of Satan, as a time of the reign of Christ with the souls of those who have been martyred and who have not worshipped the beast or received the mark of the beast. And then at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released from his imprisonment and uh, finally, um, fully and finally defeated. Um, So that reference in Revelation 20 is the cause of all the trouble. It's the only place in the Bible that a thousand years is explicitly mentioned. And so when Christians talk about the timing or about the reality of the, t- of the return of Christ, and even though that thousand years is only mentioned once, um, your view of that is really going to, uh, to have an impact on all of the prophetic literature of the Bible and even some of the non-prophetic literature of the Bible. In particular, it will um, influence your understanding um, our understanding of the kingdom of God. So it, while it's, it's only mentioned one place in the Bible, it is something that's important. Um, so there are four major views. I say major views because each view has its nuances. We don't have time to get into all of that. That would take a whole class for each, uh, probably. So uh, this is kind of the 50,000-foot view of the various schools of thought, which all revolve around... Um, this millennial, this millennium, and how we understand it. So, there are two views that are what we call premillennial. And when we say premillennial, we're talking about the relationship of the return of Christ to this thousand years. So, if you think that Christ comes first, and then the thousand-year period happens, then you are a premillennialist. If you think the millennium happens first, and then Christ returns at the end of it, you are a post-millennialist. Because the return of Christ comes after, post. Um, If, on the other hand, you think that both of these views fail to adequately account for biblical teaching regarding the nature of Christ's kingdom, um, and that many of these things should be understood symbolically, then you are probably an amillennialist. Is all that as clear as mud? If not, we will go a little further. So, and in, in, a, in a sense, there are two versions of premillennialism and two versions of postmillennialism, because amillennialism is also postmillennial. Now, it's very different from what we typically call postmillennialism, but here's the confusing thing, and I may be just confusing everybody anyway, but the confusing thing is before about 1900, Nobody talked about amillennialism, even though people believed the set of doctrines that we call amillennialism. But anybody that was not a premillennialist was called a postmillennialist. And so when you go back and read about Luther and Calvin and, and the early reformers, 
you won't necessarily find them, you won't, you won't find them referred to as amillennialists because the term hadn't been invented yet. And so um, these folks are, um, are referred to as postmillennialists, even though from Augustine forward, um, Augustine forward, uh, many of, um, many of those um, in the Reformed heritage have been amillennialists. Although that can be hotly debated at times, John. Can you not, can you not also say that, that they didn't use the term post-millennial even back then, in like Luther's day or earlier? They just simply were the Orthodox versus the, the Kiliasts, you know, the, the, those people, the, the, the premillennialists. But they didn't use that term either. They called them Kiliasts. That's true. Although I think that the term post-millennial came along first. Yeah. But not all the way back. Yeah. yeah so um, the most common view in our day and the view that many of us, including myself, grew up with is what we call dispensational premillennialism. So um, this is actually a relatively new view um, that only um, came into being in the middle part of the 1800s. So the fact that it's relatively new that until, you know, for the first um, 1840 or 50 years after the uh, after the resurrection of or after the life of Christ that nobody had ever believed these things before that doesn't necessarily make, make it wrong um, but it is sort of interesting that it is a viewpoint that nobody um, that was not in existence until the early to mid 1800s it essentially was invented um, by a man named J.N. Darby and um, who was a member of the Plymouth Brethren. Um, and so even though it's new, among evangelicals, um, it is almost certainly the most popular view um, in our day. And in the United States and in Britain, it was quickly popularized be, through, its, um, through its use by various uh, resources and institutions. And so the notes of the Schofield Reference Bible... Um, which came out around 1900, have been very influential. Um, and, and so through the Schofield Bible and its teaching on dispensationalism and premillennialism, um, these views were expanded, uh, or, or they, they came to be well-known. Um, also, the Moody Bible Institute, um, from early on, became a prominent endorser of uh, dispensational premillennialism. And here in our area... Uh, Dallas Theological Seminary has been an academic center for dispensational uh, premillennialism. So institutions um, such as these have helped to expand um, this teaching. Um, also, in more recent years, um, works by Hal Lindsey, who back in the 70s wrote The Late Great Planet Earth and other books, and then more recently, uh, Tim LaHaye and Dan G Jenkins wrote a series of books, some of which became movies, um, the Left Behind series, those have been influential as well. Um, and so um, these are, uh, have been popular, um, popular outlets that have expanded uh, this teaching. Um, I heard somebody say last week that um, I grew up dispensationalist because I grew up a Baptist. And in recent years, that's been pretty common, that Baptist churches are often dispensational churches. But it's important to note that that's not always been true. 
Um, and just thinking about it locally, um, those of you that have lived around this area a long time will know the name W.A. Criswell, who was the pastor for over 40 years at First Baptist in Dallas. And Dr. Criswell was a premillennial dispensationalist, and so it's commonly assumed that, well, that's what the church always taught. But the pastor before W.A. Criswell was George W. Truitt. Truett was also the pastor of First Dallas for over 40 years. And while the memory is largely forgotten, George Truett at the, during his lifetime was well known to be an amillennialist. And so um, that's just an example of the fact that um, more recently uh, dispensationalism has been associated with the Baptists, but that has not always been true. Um, the founder of Southwestern Seminary, whose name I just, just slipped my mind after it was already in it. B.H. Carroll. B.H. Carroll. Um, Carroll was a, uh, an amillennialist as well. And so, um, and so the dispensational doctrines now are frequently associated with Baptist churches, but that has not always been the case. So that's a little of the history. What do they believe? Well, the, the dispensationalists generally believe that over the course of history that the world is going to get worse and worse until the end of the age. And then at the end of the age, and, and, we, and by the way, we currently live in the church age, and we'll, we'll back up in a minute and talk about what that means. But we live in the church age, and in this age, God is um, focused on the salvation of Gentiles, not Jews. But at the end of the age... Um, Christ is going to return in the clouds and Christians, uh, believing, believers, are going to be raptured away and then spend the next seven years in heaven with Christ while uh, profound judgments are poured upon the world that without Christian influence um, falls into even greater and greater evil under the reign of Antichrist. At the end of that seven-year period, Christ will return in judgment, and then he will set up a literal kingdom on a literal throne in Jerusalem. Jesus will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and will reign there for a thousand years. At some point during all of this, the temple is going to be rebuilt, and during the millennium, sacrifices will be offered in the temple. Um, while Christ reigns, and while both glorified believers who have come back with Jesus and living believers who were alive at the time of his return will live side by side on planet Earth uh, during the reign of Christ. There are lots of problems with this doctrine. Um, it's difficult to imagine glorified believers and people that have not been glorified, living side by side. That, that's difficult. The idea that, um, that the temple is going to be rebuilt and sacrifices under the Old Testament customs made, um, that's really problematic, in particular with regard to what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, that those sacrifices have been rendered obsolete by the uh, once and for all sacrifice of Christ to which they pointed. Um, the idea that the current age is for Gentiles as opposed to a future millennium that is focused on the Jews 
um, is problematic because it divides the people of God. Um, it's also problematic that for some dispensationalists, and there, in recent years there have been some modifications on this, but for some dispensationalists there are two methods of salvation. One for the Jews who are saved partly or partly by works under the Mosaic Law, uh, and a different system of salvation um, for Gentiles who are justified by uh, faith alone. Um, as I say, in more recent times, there's something called progressive dispensationalism that has moved um, to some degree away from that, um, but, um, but it remains problematic. And so dispensationalism... And we could, we're not going to have time, I don't think, unless you insist on asking questions and me answering them. But um, <laughs> that sounded nasty, didn't it? Um, but, um, but from really from Genesis to Revelation, dispensationalism, not just with regard to future prophecy events, from Genesis to Revelation, dispensationalism has problems. And let me just quickly try to say it this way. With our understanding of the covenantal nature of Scripture, we understand that there are different covenants that God gave at different times. And with regard to, for example, most dramatically, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we understand that there are differences. Obviously, there have to be, or you wouldn't talk about old or new, old and new. But there's also continuity between the covenants. So there's, there's some discontinuity, but a lot of continuity. For dispensationalists, there's practically no continuity at all. There's only discontinuity. And so, for example, the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden, a covenant of works, um, when Adam and Eve failed at that, it was over, done, going to give you something new to live by. Yep. And I just don't see it. Well, and, and among other things, we miss um, the way that the Old Covenant, or the, I mean, I'm sorry, not the Old Covenant, the Covenant of Works was fulfilled in the person of Christ, who perfectly kept the law, and so we are the beneficiaries of his active obedience. And so it, the, the misunderstanding of the continuity of the covenants um, even impacts our understanding of the work of Christ. So it, it's a big problem, Wayne. Don't they, depending on which dispensational target, they have various dispensations as to also salvation. <clears throat> I think the old one was like seven or something like that. Yeah. And then uh, last, my last one I heard was there was now new covenant theology where they try and just, because the seven didn't work, and people were getting uh, kind of, they were getting beat up over it. So they've started mixing it around a little bit and sort of shortening those up. But it's always been about Israel. And, and that's right. Israel back, going back to Daniel and all that stuff. Yeah, and actually the New Covenant theology that you mentioned, it's a little bit of a different animal. But they claim to be trying to, uh, to uh, find a middle ground between uh, covenantal theology and dispensational theology, which... I don't know why you try to find a middle ground between truth and error, but that's me being snide. But, um, but actually, in the midst of all that, one of the things that they do is they, um, they say that under the new covenant, which we live now, 
the, the, the Mosaic law, including the Ten Commandments, the moral law as uh, t- codified in the Ten Commandments, has no relevance to us. And so, um, so these kinds of ideas are problematic. So this is dispensational premillennialism. It's, um, it's what many of us grew up with, probably as um, maybe some of us continue to believe that. It's what we grew up with, we're comfortable <laughs> with it, we admire people that taught it to us. But um, I hope that the quick outline that I've given today has sort of opened uh, thoughts with regard to some of the problems of this. So um, let me move to the other three um, because I'm not going to get done. Um, a second kind of premillennialism is called is referred to as historic premillennialism. And while they are both forms of premillennialism, they are very, very different. Um, historic premillennialism doesn't have all of the interpretive baggage that we've been talking about. Um, and really, in many ways, historic premillennialism, in terms of uh, coming to the premillennial position, is almost entirely focused on the passage in Revelation 20. And so they look at the passage in Revelation 20 and they say, well, reading it naturally, it's the only conclusion I can come to that Christ returns prior to the millennium. And so that's what I believe. But having arrived at that conclusion, it does have... Um, impacts on their understandings of other things, particularly with regard um, to the kingdom of God um, and so and, and some Old Testament prophecies um, and to some degree the relationship between Israel and the church. So it does have some impacts on other things, but really um, in its origin, um, their focus is on Revelation 20. And so um, you'll find um, those that believe in historic um, premillennialism um, saying, no, I don't agree with what the dispensationalists say. I don't think that there will be sacrifices offered in the temple and that sort of thing. So they don't, um, they don't uh, go down the route of that kind of uh, literalism um, from some Old Testament passages such as Ezekiel 40 through 48. Um, and their, their focus tends to be on, um, on Revelation 20 as the source of their belief. Um, this kind of premillennialism is called historic because, um, unlike the other, it is quite old. And so the early church fathers prior to Augustine um, were frequently uh, premillennialists of this historic um, variety. Um, in modern times, the most, uh, the most uh, well-spoken uh, academic writer on this has been George Eldon Ladd who uh, taught at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. Among Presbyterians, the best-known advocate of historic premillennialism was James Montgomery Boyce, um, who until his death was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. That's historic premillennialism. The third view that we will talk about, and I'm getting briefer and briefer as we go along, the third view that we will talk about is uh, what we refer to as postmillennialism. Now, unlike the premillennialists who think that the world is going to get worse and worse until the end of the age, postmillennialists think that there is a golden age of history prior to the return of Christ. And so a postmillennialist would say that the, through the spread of the preaching of the gospel, the day is going to come when not everyone will be a believer, but 
pretty close to everyone is going to be a believer. And so there will be widespread acceptance of the gospel. Through that, there will be moral improvement of the human race. And additionally, through the blessings of common grace, life will get better. And so uh, both in terms of redemption and common grace, there will be this golden age of world history. It might not be literally a thousand years, but it's going to be a long period of time. And then at the end of that, um, Christ will return. And so that's the um, understanding of uh, post-millennialists. Um, it will be characterized by widespread improvements in life generally. And so it will be a, a long period of blessedness that will be concluded with the return of Christ. Yes? Yeah, theonomy is one form of it. Um, so um, certainly I think all theonomists would be post-millennialists, but not all post-millennialists would be theonomists. So yeah, it's, it's one variety of the post-millennial view. Then the final view that I will mention is amillennialism. According to amillennialists, <laughs> The millennium refers to the entire period between Christ's first and second advent. So we are living at some point in the midst of the millennium even now. During this time, the gospel will spread to all nations, but the spread of the gospel and the prevalence of good and evil will wax and wane. But this does not diminish the fact that Satan has been bound and the gospel has continued to spread across the nations because Satan can't is bound and can't stop it. Old Testament pro- pro- promises are fulfilled by the accomplishment of Christ and his reign over his church. At the end of the age, Satan will be released and there will be a period of intense evil. Christ will return and finally defeat Satan and all of Christ's enemies and he will reign for eternity. So that is the amillennial view. Um, the amillennial view... Makes, attempts to make sense both of the Old Testament prophecies and how they are fulfilled in Christ. And it also makes an effort at making sense of the promises related to Christ's kingdom. So frequently when we talk about premillennialism and postmillennialism, well, let me back up. Um, when Jesus talked about his kingdom in the Gospels and then when it's talked about in the epistles, you see that the kingdom of God has an already here aspect and a not yet here aspect. And so it's both, uh, you know, we live in an age in which the kingdom of God, it's not really spatial and territorial, but it's the age to come. The age to come has invaded the current age, and we are a part of the age to come as believers. And so the kingdom of God is already here. When Paul wrote about the kingdom and said, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, he's not talking about something future after Christ comes back. He's talking about how we live here and now um, in the kingdom. And so the kingdom is something that's already here, And yet we know that at the end of the age, there is a greater fullness of the kingdom when Christ reigns 
perfectly over all things and nothing is outside um, the, um, the nature of his rule. No, nobody's in rebellion against his rule um, at his return. Um, in the present, Christ rules in his kingdom over his church in a way that's different from the way that he rules over the rest of life. And so amillennialism attempts to make sense of the dual nature of Christ's kingdom, that it's already here and it's not yet. Um, so sometimes when you hear people um, critique premillennialism, you'll, you'll hear the phrase used that premillennialism is... Um, um, I forgot my phrase. Um, that, it's, um, that it's an under-realized eschatology or an underrealized um, understanding of the last times. And by underrealized we mean that the the blessings of Christ's kingdom are underappreciated for the current age and everything is pushed into the future. On the other hand, with regard to postmillennialism, we'll sometimes say that um, they have an overrealized eschatology in which they are expecting a perfect rule of God's law in the here and now. And so things that the Bible intends for the future, they are pulling back into the present. And so if you're an amillennialist, then you would think that um, amillennialism makes better sense of the nature of the kingdom, understanding that Christ's kingdom is already here and not yet here, and making sense of the prophecies and promises that are related to that. This is a very quick summary of four very complicated views. If your view is different from my own, well, I hope you get saved some... No, no, um, but in reality, um, you know, all of these views are, um, are held um, by uh, wonderful believers in Christ, um, while I think one of the views we've talked about is far worse than the others, that's a view that I held in the early part of my life, and I had no many good Christians that believed those things. So um, none of these things are intended to be condemnatory, but I do think that they are important, and I hope this, this has been a good use of your time. We don't have much time, but we'll try to take questions if, if you can be quick about it. Has this been helpful at all? Okay, I see nods. That's good. If you want to study further, uh, just a couple of things. Um, this is a book called The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views. The editor of it is um, Robert Klaus. And there, there is a more recent book with the same format than this one, but I think this one's better. Uh, basically what they do is they have uh, advocates of the four different positions and each of them writes an article, and then each of them responds to the other's article. So this is a very helpful book because you see everybody, um, you see these views presented from their own perspectives so, and, and then reacted to. So it's good. I would recommend that. Um, in case you haven't figured out what I believe, you might figure it out after I also recommend uh, Kim Riddlebarger's book, A Case for Amillennialism. Um, what makes Riddlebarger good is that he also, like many of us, was raised as a premillennial dispensationalist, and so he understands the view very well as, um, as well as what he believes now, which is amillennialism. So um, anyway, this, one, this is my personal copy, but uh, they also have it in the church library. 
um, if you are interested in that. And I'm over, so we should pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and uh, we pray that you would help us as we seek to understand it better. Help us uh, never to uh, look down on those that uh, disagree with our um, our views on uh, secondary uh, matters, and yet also also we pray that you would help us to be uh, firm in our uh, understanding of Scripture and to desire to understand it better and more fully. We thank you that you are coming again and that uh, you will fulfill all of your promises to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.